and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Seth Barrett Tillman, lecturer at the Maynooth University Department of Law in Ireland. We will discuss his draft article, New Sources on the 1809 Motion to Vacate Jacob Henry's North Carolina State Legislative Seat. So welcome to the show, Seth. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Yeah, my pleasure. So this was a really fun and unexpected article in a lot of ways. Um, But, you know, I I think for listeners who, you know, unsurprisingly may not be so familiar with Jacob Henry, the uh, early 19th century North Carolina legislator, I wonder if you could say a little bit about who he was and what happened in 1809. Sure. Uh, There's actually um, a lot of unknowns about Henry and his family. Um, It appears he was a relative of the Gratz family. There's a a university named after them, uh, Gratz College. Uh, Paul Finkelman is the president now. Uh, And actually, I had to get some sources about Jacob Henry from him. Uh, Henry uh, was, as best we can tell, uh, Jewish. And in 1808, he was elected to the state legislature in the lower house in North Carolina. And he was reelected in 1809, when lo and behold, one of the members pointed out that they had a religious test in North Carolina. And um, one of the members made a motion to vacate his seat because ostensibly he didn't meet the qualifications. Uh, uh, North Carolina had a constitution from 1776. Um, many states had new constitutions as a result of the revolution. They had to deal with the fact that uh, royal officers and royal governors were gone. So the um, uh, Articles Congress asked them to draft state constitutions. And, uh, you know, not surprisingly, some of the states had religious tests. And the one in North Carolina said, no person who shall deny the being of God, the truth of the Protestant religion, the divine authority, either of the Old or New Testament, shall have an office or place of trust or a prophet in the civil department within this state. And uh, when the legislature met uh, in uh, November um, 20th, 1809, uh, actually November 30th, excuse me, uh, Henry uh, was reported as having won his election, sat with the other members, took his oath, and it looked like it was just going to be another year in the legislature for him. But a week later, one of the members said, uh, this guy doesn't meet the qualifications. He's denied the truth of the Protestant religion, and he's denied the authority of the Old and New Testament or at least the New Testament in Henry's case, and uh, made a motion to have the seat declared vacant. And in 18, the next day, uh, the, the motion was made on December 5th, and the next day in 1806, uh, there was debate uh, uh, to exclude Henry. Uh, and the, the primary source we have for the debate are the, is the journal from the North Carolina legislature. But journals are a lot like court dockets. They don't really have debate in them, or at least they didn't back then. They were just really reporting things like motion practice, who made what motion and what the vote on the motion was. So we don't know from the journal exactly what happened. Uh, all the journal reports is that it went to committee. Uh, the committee heard, 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 basically decided there was no evidence, which is sort of unclear what that meant. And then uh, the committee reported back that uh, as no evidence was found that he doesn't meet the qualifications, we recommend that the seat not be vacated. And the whole, the whole commons voted that the seat wouldn't be vacant. Uh, and if the story, uh, this, what, what has happened over the years is the story has been told and retold, but we're, we're left with many puzzles about this case. Uh, before I get to the puzzles, I just wanted to report that this case sort of had a happy ending. Uh, 
one, Henry kept his seat. Two, uh, uh, the uh, state had a convention in 1835, and there was a motion to get rid of the religious test, but they couldn't quite get there. Instead, what they did is they brought in the religious test from Protestants to Christians. So Jews were still left out, and so were atheists. And then in 1868, there was another convention and another state constitution, and they brought in it past Christians, and it basically says, all persons who shall deny the being of Almighty God, they, they can be excluded from certain offices. And uh, that test is basically still there today. It's probably not enforceable as a result of the First Amendment of the National Constitution being incorporated against the states and settled Supreme Court jurisprudence, but it's actually still there in the, in the state constitution. There's still technically a religious test there. Uh, so that's the happy ending. But if we go back to Henry's case, we have a little bit of a mystery. Uh, and part of the mystery is the way historians have acted. That is, the historians have told stories about the Henry case, but if you read any of these histories and you try to figure out what their sources are, uh, you're, you're left hanging because different historians tell you different stories about the Henry case, what justified or what led to Henry keeping his seat. But since there's nothing discussed in the journal, and since these, these later historians, late in the antebellum period and then in the 20th century, uh, don't really point to early sources justifying the story, you're really left wondering, how did they know what happened? And you're left wondering why the committee and then later the whole house decided to leave Henry in possession of the seat. And there are two basic stories that are told uh, by the um, postbellum historians. Um, the first story is that Henry gave this really great speech. That is, Henry gave a speech about freedom of religion, about toleration, freedom of conscience, democracy, equality, and it was a great speech. And there are some historians that that speech is what carried the day uh, and led the house to allow Henry to keep his speech. Henry also had a slightly technical argument. His technical argument was that the North Carolina Constitution also has a Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights protects freedom of conscience, and that freedom of conscience provision should overcome the technical provision in Article 32, uh, which talks about uh, uh, certain offices only being uh, open to Protestants. All right, but the problem with those histories that talk about Henry's great speech is, where did they get copies of Henry's speech? It's, it's not, the speech isn't reported in the journal. The, the second argument that the historians advance is what I call the office argument. And this is what led me personally um, uh, to, uh, to research what happened to Henry in 1809. I've written on the US federal constitution and how it uses the word office and officer for going on 10 years now. I've, I've actually been part of filing amicus briefs involved uh, with President Trump uh, because uh, there are these cases that have been brought against him saying he's viol violated the foreign emoluments clause and that clause uses the, the phrase office under the United States, or actually more fully office of profit or trust under the United States. And it was this research that led me to Henry's argument, the, to he, this dispute about Henry, because later historians have said that Henry made, or not Henry, but Henry's supporters made the argument that the language of the North Carolina Constitution, the language of office, didn't extend to members of the legislature. And the actual language in the state constitution was non-Protestants cannot hold office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within the state. It's kind of technical. 
Uh, I'll, I'll sum it up by saying office in the civil department within the state. And it's similar, but not exactly the same as the sort of research I've done in the federal constitution. And historians have said that somebody made the argument back in 1809 that members of the legislature don't hold office in the civil department. And the puzzle with that is, well, we have the journal. The journal doesn't tell us what arguments we make. So how do they know that? Right. So there are two puzzles. We have, we have these two stories that are told about Henry. Historians say they know what arguments were made. It's not clear how they know that. They don't tell us. There are no real sources that go back to 1809. And then there's a third puzzle, or actually uh, two related puzzles. One is, <clears throat> when this matter was debated again, in 1835, because there was a movement to reforming the North Carolina Constitution, uh, one of the members was a fellow named Gaston. Uh, and he, he was a member in the 1835 convention to amend the state constitution. He was also a member back in 1809, and he was very prominent in moving to reform the religious test. Uh, and he expounded on the, the, uh, the, the um, scope of this provision extensively. Many historians have looked at Gaston's speech and they've assumed that the arguments Gaston made in 35, 1835 were also made in 1809. The problem is Gaston doesn't actually say that. So, so the fact that Gaston made an argument in 1835 isn't enough to tell us if the same arguments were made in 1809, even though many historians seem to think so. And another problem uh, with the story that's usually told is that some modern historians have said that this office argument just doesn't work. Uh, and I, I find this surprising because some of the people who've made this argument are historians. And the reason I find this surprising is a very similar debate happened in, in the U.S. Senate in 1799 when a U.S. Senator named Blount had been expelled for basically running his own uh, foreign policy uh, out of the Senate, trying to stimulate a war between the British and, and, and the Spanish over Spanish Florida. Blount had investments in Spanish Florida and was hoping to sort of sponsor a war there to increase his land values. Uh, Blount was expelled from the Senate, but when, once Blount was impeached after he was expelled, one of the arguments his defense counsel made was that a senator isn't an officer and therefore can't be impeached. Uh, so, so the argument that that is associated with the Henry impeachment, that is an office, an office and a, a seat in the state legislature are not the same. It wasn't something brand new. It was something that had already been made in the, in the, uh, the Blount trial in the Senate. So it's surprising that modern historians, and a few have said this, actually some very well-known modern historians have said that this is a far-fetched explanation. So we have four puzzles right off the bat. We have, <clears throat> Bellum historians telling us what arguments were made in 1809, but they don't point to any contemporaneous sources explaining how they know that. We have people pointing at speeches from the 1839 convention, I'm sorry, the 1835 convention, which was there to amend this provision and other provisions of the uh, North Carolina Constitution, but people cite the convention debate as if it was the same debate from 1809 when it wasn't. And then we have modern historians telling us this this argument about office, whether it was made or not, doesn't make any sense when a very similar argument had been made in the U.S. Senate in 1799. As a matter of fact, many authorities say that was the argument that carried the day uh, in the Blount hearing. Mm. So we have a lot on. Mm. And the question is, 
why? Why do, we, why do we have such a puzzle here, both with regard to sources and with regard to how historians have treated this? Hmm. So I could go on, but... <laughs> well, I, I, I wonder if you could briefly reflect on the sort of historiography of this problem, because I think, you know, it, it, there's a familiar distinction between primary and secondary sources, but you add a new dimension, which is kind of tertiary sources. And I wonder if right, you could talk right. a little bit about what you mean by tertiary sources and how that sure. affects the kind of historiographical problem that you're talking about. <coughs> sure. So by primary sources, I mean contemporaneous sources, sources of people who were there who witnessed the event, events and wrote them down. Uh, things like the journal is a, is a good primary source. Secondary sources, uh, by secondary sources, I mean sources that came next. Uh, these would be sources, let's say, from the 1810s right up until the American Civil War. And often these secondary sources are citing one another, and they're citing the 1835 convention debate. But they don't point to anything from 1809 or early 1810. So they're telling a story, but they're not explaining how they get that story. Once you get post-bellum, late 19th century and 20th century, people are telling the story again, and they're relying on these secondary uh, anti-bellum sources. Uh, they're not, and they're, they're not even trying to point to primary sources. They're just telling the story, as was retold by the first historians running in the 1820s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. So we have a puzzle, which is how did people first hear of uh, uh, the arguments that were made uh, when the Henry seat was thought to be vacated. And then we also have a, a, a later puzzle. Why are these later historians being so judgmental with regard to an argument that was made? Why are they so sure that if this argument was made about office, why are they willing to call it far-fetched? Especially when there was a very similar adjudication in the U.S. Senate about Blount. That is, when, when the Blount story is told, the Blount impeachment, the primary reason, the usual reason given for why the Blount impeachment was um, unsuccessful is that the majority in the Senate said they didn't have jurisdiction because a senator is not an officer of the United States, and therefore doesn't fall under that language in the impeachment clause the, in the U.S. federal constitution, which says that impeachment extends to the president, vice president, and civil officers of the United States. So the, the case of Henry is a lot like, not exactly, but a lot like Blount, yet these later tertiary historians have said, this office argument doesn't make any sense. And that's, that's where I started this project. I started this project with these four puzzles. Mm -hmm. Well, so in the paper, you distinguish between two different uses of the term office. And I wonder if you could right. kind of explain those two different uses and how sure. they're relevant to the sort of legal meaning of the term office in, in relation to Henry. Okay. So when we, when we go back to 1809, the people in 1809 were trying to decide whether one whether Henry had violated these qualifications. And those qualifications were, did he deny the being of God or the truth of the Protestant religion? But also those qualifications only apply to a person having an office, place of trust or profit in the civil department in the state. So we have this language of office or office in the civil department within the state. And the question is, what does it mean? And one of the things I try to set out in my paper is that there are two different usages, two primary different usages of the word office. Uh, 
And that's part of the sor source of the confusion part with regard to why some people see this as far-fetched, this particular argument, uh, because they're only seeing one of the uses. Now, there's, there's one use of office that we use all the time. When we talk about uh, a person having an office. It means he has a position. Office and position are almost synonymous in this usage. A person who has a place in the hierarchy, in the pecking order, no matter how high or how, how low, we might say that person has an office or is an officer. But there's another common usage of the term office and officer, and that usage is a person who has subordinate authority under the apex. That is, it, office is sometimes used to mean someone who doesn't have an apex position, but who is appointed or works for or is supervised by someone with an apex position. And you, you really see this usage um, all the time in the English language. It's just that we don't notice it. So, for example, uh, and I think it's sort of, you know, a, a fun example, especially because I'm dealing with the Henry case. Uh, you'll see usage uh, from the 18th century that will talk about the king being the fount of office, and he has within him the appointment power of all officers in the state. Now, this would be British usage. But <clears throat> that usage of office means implicitly that the king is not an officer. He appoints the officers. Uh, now, you'll see both usages. The question is, can you figure out which use is in your particular document? Uh, and one of the things you'll see with regard to the Blount trial uh, is that later commentaries would reinterpret Blount as saying that the language of office in the U.S. Constitution, according to Blount, this is their reinterpretation of Blount, extended that language only to subordinate office. The question is, for the people in 1809, is that what they meant when they suggested, if they suggested, because again, one of the puzzles here is what arguments were actually made if we don't have the journal telling us what arguments were made. But if this argument was made, one of the arguments was allegedly that office doesn't extend to members of the legislature. Members of the legislature are elected, they're not appointed, they have apex authority, for it might be that the language of office doesn't extend to them. So for me, the, the question was, to, in order to push this argument forward, in order to figure out what happened, was to discover if, the, if, if we could find any other sources that actually were contemporaneous with the Henry debate. Um, so what I began to do is I began to look for new sources and <clears throat> I did eventually find them. Uh, and, and so one of the mysteries here is, why am I, who am doing research in Ireland in the 21st century, finding these sources that apparently no one has seen for a long, long time and don't appear to be in any of the secondary and tertiary literature. Now, I can't, I can't be 100% sure that there isn't another source out there that hasn't made use of the sources I'm about to discuss with you, but I, I've done pretty far-ranging research, and I'm going to tell you what my sources are, why I think they're reliable, and how they sort of change the understanding of what happened in 1809 and 1810. So I've looked for lots of books. I've looked on the Hathi Trust, which is a great collection of Americana. I've also looked on the Internet Archive. And to tell you the truth, in terms of books, I came up dry. The, the, the secondary and tertiary literature points to other secondary sources, but nothing really from contemporaneous from 1809 and 1810. Then I turned to the sources on what's called Genealogy Bank. 
which is this great resource of early American newspapers, which uses what's called Redex material from the American Antiquarian Society. And I looked for sources that discussed the Henry motion. And lo and behold, we can actually find, if we look hard enough, contemporaneous news reports of what actually happened. Uh, and to some extent, they're a little surprising, and to some extent, they're not surprising. Uh, it turns out that the historians were right in part. That is, when the secondary and tertiary historians made the argument that Henry gave this great speech and have reported this speech, we could actually track the speech down in newspapers from December 5th and December 6th. Actually, from December 7th, they were reported the next day. And not only was it reported the next day, but it was widely re-reported in other states. Henry really did give a good speech, and it was reported in other states throughout the United States. That doesn't tell us that that was the reason Henry prevailed in the motion. It just tell, tells us what he actually said in the speech, and it had been reported correctly later, we, and we now know what the source was. The source was newspaper reports. It doesn't really tell us that that's why he won. And as far as the office argument, that was made too. That was made by Gaston in 1809, just as he made it again in 1835. So in 1835, he didn't tell us he made that argument in 1809, but in fact he did. And it was a fairly sophisticated argument. And not only that, but he also talked about uh, the Blount trial right there in 1809. And um, I get the feeling that people in his audience might very well have understood. I, 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 I think the people in the legislature in 1809, if you read the report, were a very sophisticated audience, uh, both in terms of substantive law and in parliamentary procedure. Um, uh, it, was, it was an impressive debate, which was reported. I think the reason why this debate was basically lost to later historians is when later historians tried to look back to find it, they probably looked at newspapers from around December 5th and 6th, maybe 7th or 8th. What actually happened was the detailed debate of what happened to Henry wasn't really reported till a week later, December 14th, and then actually later in December and then in January. Extensive reports of the debate were put in the newspapers several weeks later. So if historians, you know, pre-Redex or pre-computerization uh, of these early resources, try to go back and look at Raleigh newspapers or other North Carolina newspapers at around the time uh, the debate took place, they might have missed the detailed reports of the debate. Uh, so the office argument was made. And what happened is, is that after uh, the motion was made, the next day, substantive debate began. Henry gave his speech. And Gaston made the argument that there's no reason we should go any further. He basically made the equivalent of a motion to dismiss in the legislature. He, what, what would have been called a demur in those days, or a motion to strike. He basically said that if all the allegations that are alleged are true, we still can't throw Henry out of the legislature because of the office argument that uh, being a member doesn't fall under the language of office. And then what happened is there was debate upon that. And even though Henry had given his speech, and even though the office argument had been made, it appears the legislature, the, the lower house, wasn't convinced yet, or at least Henry wasn't willing to test his strength by having a vote on it. And one member said, we have to send this committee to take evidence. And there's a hint of this in the journal report, that it, the, the committee heard evidence, and there's no real explanation of what they meant. And um, there's, there's debate upon what, whether it should go uh, in, into full committee. 
And then what happens is one member called Drew says, what sort of evidence do you intend to take? Are we going to ask him if he's Jewish? Are we going to ask him if he eats pork? This, this, this particular member is very put off by turning the legislature into what he sees as some sort of inquisition. Nevertheless, a friend of Henry says, look, I don't think you have the votes to prevail on this. And if you don't send it to committee, it will look like, you know, you're really trying to hide what the facts of the situation are. And the, the legislature was willing at that point, the lower house to send in the committee where an extraordinary debate takes place. An absolutely extraordinary debate, which is reported about a month later. And I'll just, I'll just read you a little part. It turns out that <clears throat> there will be three witnesses. There were three members of the lower house and there was one Senator from the upper house. And there was questioning. And I'm just gonna read some of it to you. Mr. Fuller, a member from the Senate, said he knew nothing of Mr. Henry's religion. He never heard him deny the authenticity of the New Testament. Then Drew speaks. Did you ever see him in synagogue? Now remember, Drew is the man who said we should never send this to committee, right? Drew's the man who said, what kind of questions are you gonna ask? My reading of Drew's question is Drew is just disgusted at the turn of events and he's trying to show the committee how ridiculous this line of questioning is. So Drew asked the question, did you ever see him in synagogue? And Mr. Fuller, the senator says, no, I have seen him at meetings of Baptists and Methodists. You know, which is really interesting, you know what I mean? Uh, which is really interesting. So then we turn to Mr. McGuire, who's another member of the, of the lower house. And he's asked, he said, um, Mr. McGuire, I'm being asked, said he saw Mr. Henry when he qualified, that is when he took his oath, draw a book from his pocket, but he knew not what book it was. That is, he, he didn't know what sort of Bible it was. So Mr. Drew goes, did he refuse to swear upon the New Testament? And McGuire says, not that I observe. McGuire didn't see the book. And there's another question, Mr. Cherry, did any other person put his hand upon the book that Mr. Henry used? Answer, no. Then there's another member, Mr. Roberts. Mr. Roberts had understood that Mr. Henry swore upon the Old and New Testament both. He knew nothing about his religion. He was esteemed a moral man and a good citizen. His stepfather, I think that's referring to Henry's stepfather, was a Jew. And he understood that Mr. Henry was of that religion, but he did not actually recollect ever Mr. Henry saying so. Mr. Drew says, does he eat pork? Answer, I don't know. Mr. Nelson knew nothing of Mr. Henry's religion or the matter he took the oath of. Mr. Pickens said, when the members qualified, he saw Henry draw a book from his pocket, he thought, but was not certain that he divided parts of the book with his thumb. That is the concern here was that maybe he had a book of the Old and New Testament but he only took the oath on part of the book. Finally there's, a debate. Finally, there's a debate with the clerk. The clerk of the house said, the clerk stated that Mr. Henry, previous to taking his qualifying oath, said he wished to be sworn in the Old Testament and had provided his own book. But the clerk did not notice whether he had actually qualified on that book. On the moat, then the committee rose and reported that the subject under the consideration, no evidence was heard, no evidence was found to support the motion and the committee uh, concurred unanimously. So it seems that the two arguments the historians made, which were that Henry gave a great speech, happened just the way the historian said. It was reported correctly in the secondary and tertiary literature, even though that literature never explained the source of the speech. And it would also seem that the office argument, which Gaston made in 1835, that happened too. 
And as a matter of fact, if you read Gaston's argument, it was really quite sophisticated the way he made it. And he actually relied on precedent from the Blount hearing, which showed that these people were very well informed. Uh, the, 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 the level of debate that took place here on the legal issues was really quite sophisticated. I would say more than quite sophisticated. They did all this on one day's notice. Uh, these were very effective lawyers and parliamentarians. But it seems that the two arguments which the historian said, which actually convinced the legislature, either didn't convince the legislature or weren't, they weren't enough on their own. And it was, it was this third argument. This argument was that there's no actual evidence he denied the New Testament, which actually got the majority together. So in fact, we have three arguments. We still don't know for sure what put Henry over the top. It probably was a little bit of all three, but we can't be sure. Uh, one of the larger things to take away from this is the willingness of historians and later commentators really not to admit how weak their underlying sources are for the conclusions they reach. Um, and, it, and also, I would say very strangely, not to look for new and better sources. I mean, it shouldn't be that my writing in the 21st century uh, admittedly, I have electronic sources that some of the earlier historians didn't have. Uh, uh, writing from Ireland is really what discovered this information. It, it's, it's, it's a very strange way to look at it. it. It also is very heartening, to tell you the truth. I mean, heartening to see that these people were really trying to be fair. Uh, one of the interesting things about this case is that it, it appears there were no objections to Henry keeping his seat. That includes the people who brought the original motion. Uh, many of the news reports say that Henry prevailed unanimously. I'm not sure that's right as a technical matter, because the journal doesn't report it was unanimous. It's only the newspaper reports. That probably looks like the newspaper man was in the legislature when the vote happened, and he didn't see any objections. There was no formal vote showing it was unanimous. But one of the things that struck me as possible is maybe this was a little bit of a setup. That is, that is the level of debate that took place here, the sophistication, um, uh, the, the, that it was done so quickly and the arguments were so well drafted, so well put together, so articulate. And you see this if you read the, the, the full newspaper reports, is just maybe this was the beginning of debate in North Carolina to get rid of uh, the religious test. And they, they basically created this case against Henry in order to, be, to begin to produce a record for the North Carolina public how ridiculous it was to keep this test in the state constitution. I can't mm. prove that, of course, but I wonder whether it's true. Yeah, I mean, it does seem that, like, especially under the office argument, there's a kind of absurdity to the outcome, right? In well, in this in the sense that you know, if you could be a legislator but you couldn't serve at, in a subordinate position, it seems kind of odd. <clears throat> well, yeah, but that uh, that's under the assumption that uh, the right answer. Um, is one that serves an obvious policy um, purpose. That is, the very fact that it's written the way it, it was may be because it was the result of compromise, and you just can't expect everyone to be satisfied with that compromise. I mean, one of the things Gaston points at is, look, the, the way the provision is set up textually is it only applies to the civil department. Mm. That means we're allowed to let people be in the military. I mean, that, that's, that's real power. The, the <laughs> commander-in-chief commander at a time of war. I mean, th these people were always worried about military dictators. So uh, another thing Gaston points about is this doesn't affect who could vote. 
I mean, Jews can still vote, non-Protestants can still vote. It only keeps them from holding office. Uh, uh, and Gaston also point, and Gaston also quite seriously makes the point that office and member and member of the legislature are divorced from one another. So Gaston is still, certainly willing to make the point that mm. this doesn't apply to members of the legislature. So if what you're saying is it's odd that people who want religious exclusion don't make it apply to everything, that may be because today we have the worst possible thoughts about religious exclusion. The other way to look at it, about it is maybe they were trying to make the religious exclusion as narrow as they could because that's what they thought their public wanted and was safe for society. That is, it, it may be that they lived in a world that there weren't two polar answers, no religious exclusion at all and total religious exclusion. And what you're seeing is the beginning of a compromise or perhaps the beginning of what might have been a progressive shift towards no exclusion. But it doesn't make any sense what to interpret it by saying that the result is bad or the result is hard to understand. Mm. That result is only to understand if you assume the world can only be two polar opposites, total exclusion and no exclusion. I mean, let me put it this way. In Britain today, Catholics are still excluded from the monarchy. I mean, they are. I mean, if, 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 the, if Prince Charles d decides to convert to Catholicism under statute, he can't be king, all right? So the fact that some people are excluded from some positions and some people aren't certainly offends our sensibilities today. Uh, but that doesn't mean it wasn't the law at the time where people didn't understand it to be the law. Mm -hmm. Well, so one of the things that I think is really fascinating about this paper is the way it draws so many kind of really deep and broad observations about early 18th century American society from one particular event. There's a sort of richness to the way of kind of thinking about the way people saw governance and their world and their relationships to each other. And I wonder if in closing, you could reflect a little bit on sort of doing legal historical research and kind of thoughts you might have about how to do that effectively based on your own experiences, given kind of you know, the extensive amount of work you've done in the area. I suppose the first thing I'll say is that um, a lot of people have found in the Henry case their nirvana. Uh, you see this especially with people writing uh, around World War II. They see, they see in the Henry case a sign of North Carolina and American society moving towards a better, you might call a more liberal future. This was the beginning of it. Uh, this was uh, their beginning to see that religious tests are problematic. They weren't terrible people. They didn't have a total religious test, but they were uncomfortable with it by 1809, and they did the right thing by letting Henry keep his seat. It's a sort of funny way to say they did the right thing if they don't believe the officer argument because the Constitution does have this exclusion. And you, you, you've got to wonder, you know, how, how do we want to imagine how these people were acting? That is, do we imagine these people didn't really believe the officer argument and let Henry keep the seat because they just had broader feelings about toleration and fair play? Or maybe they really did believe that they were enforcing the Constitution of their state. And they did have these very legalistic arguments relating to either evidence or the scope of the word office that allowed them to harmonize their personal views uh, uh, with the Constitution and law and order as, as they understood it. But, but in terms of the way history was, 
Later historians found what they wanted to find in the Henry story. And in doing so, they didn't even bother actually looking for the uh, original sources. They were just relying on secondary sources that often came uh, a good deal later. Uh, and they don't really admit to that either, which is, which is a problem. Um, and this is a problem in a lot of legal scholarship too, because what you'll have is you'll have these law review articles that are written in our time that rely on law review articles from 30 years before that rely on law review articles from 30 years before that. And somehow what gets lost is, you know, really what were the facts at the time we're talking about and why aren't people providing uh, primary documents? Um, I, I think though, when you see what these people actually did, you could really only be impressed by them. Uh, these people really, in, in 1809, they had a, an interesting legal case, and they, were, they went about it in a very methodical, responsible manner. As a matter of fact, one of the things that happens in the later newspapers that come about in, in late January and February 1810 is you have people writing these letters to the editors saying, in my state, we had a religious test, but we let the Jewish guy keep the seat anyway, and we did it unanimously. I mean, it was a real matter of state pride uh, uh, that, that this test was interpreted narrowly. And there are actually letters to the editor on, uh, you know, pe people, it was, it was, a, it was a, a point of personal pride how their state had handled this interesting situation. Uh, and apparently this was never litigated again, this, this particular religious test. Henry was the first time and the last time until the constitution was modified in 1835. Um, so I think there's really a lot to be learned about this, to tell you the truth. Um, um, I, I think also that in terms of primary sources, we just can never be too careful. Um, it's just too easy for us to impose our current views for no reason at all. Um, and, and I have to say, I'm really surprised by that, to tell you the truth in some ways. That is, uh, historians who I respect have looked at this particular incident and they just said, this office argument, it just doesn't work. It's just far-fetched. And the people in Henry's time, they said, what do you mean it's far-fetched? This is exactly what the U.S. Senate had done only a decade earlier in 1799. It's almost as if the modern historians don't know the same events that the people in 1809 knew, but it's not like the Blount case is this mystery. We've had lots of books and lots of articles on it. As a matter of fact, whenever impeachment comes up, people end up talking about Blount in one way or another. And I'm sure at some time during the government impeachment it will come <laughs> up again. Mm, mm. Well, Seth, thanks so much for making the time to come on the show. I really enjoyed reading your article, and it was great so talking much. to you about it. Okay.
I want to tell you so Because I'm proud to be a true I'd like for you to know Whenever I think of who I am I want to tell you so At Pesach time I'm happy To give my friends a treat I share the chocolate macaroons And matzah that I eat Because I'm proud to be a Jew I'd like for you to know Whenever I think of who I am I want to tell you so Because I'm proud to be a Jew I'd like for you to know Whenever I think of who I am I want to tell you so I'd love to join the choir And sing out loud and strong If they would ask me what I know I'd sing a Jewish song I'd sing I'm proud to be a Jew I'd like for you to know Whenever I think of who I am I want to tell you so Because I'm proud to be a Jew I'd like for you to know Whenever I think of who I am I want to tell you so If you would like to visit You'll find me easily For on the doorpost of my house My mezuzah you'll see Because I'm proud to be a Jew I'd like for you to know Whenever I think of who I am I want to tell you so Because I'm proud to be a Jew I'd like for you to know Whenever I think of who I am I want to tell you so Whenever I think of who I am, I want to tell you so.